Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. This is How Do You Do That with Emily Tresseter on Joy 94.9, the show answering the questions you didn't even know you had. This week's guest is a botanist and a manager of part of the science division at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne, Dr. Alastair Robinson. We talk about what botany actually is, plus why carnivorous plants are his area of expertise. We also chat about what inspired him to study plants from a very young age and how being out in the field is exceptionally interesting and sometimes dangerous. Plus, how working at the Botanic Gardens has been a very rewarding experience. The idea of being able to find new species in nature or to see species that I haven't seen before, it will drag me by the waist up any mountain. I mean, you know, I, I've climbed up Kilimanjaro just to see the giant lobelia that grow up there. And, you know, it's, it's a stunning mountain, but my God, it, it's hard work. Dr. Alastair Robinson is a botanist, but what exactly is botany? Botany is the study of plants, and botanists are plant scientists who carry out taxonomic research and important plant IDs work. Taxonomy is basically the science of naming nomenclature. This work informs various aspects of society from ecology and conservation efforts through to supporting medical teams, biosecurity, and even food security. Some botanists are actually hardcore research scientists who lead new research into the physiology and conservation of Australia's flora in this case. And this is really critical work in a changing environment, particularly our warming landscape. They help us to to understand the responses of native plants to environmental change and help us to make decisions about how we can ensure their survival into the future. You mentioned the science of naming plants. What does that mean? Taxonomy, there's two parts to it. There is the part where you look at the relationships between plants, and part of that is deciding whether or not a plant that you're studying is actually a new one or a known one. And then there's the, the nomenclature side of things where you choose an appropriate name and publish the species as new, as benefits the case. It's clear that Alastair knows a lot about botany and that he certainly is an expert. Was he always interested in plants? Actually, yes, if we go back a long way. So I originally come from Malaysia, where I grew up. Obviously, I have this sick Pommy accent, which I picked up at secondary school and university in the UK. And growing up there, I was surrounded always by lush tropical rainforest. And this was even the case in the suburb of Kuala Lumpur, where I, I used to live. And that's no longer the condition it's in now. It's just urban sprawl. But at the time, plants were all around me and were just fascinating. And my mum used to go on trips to Singapore and Hong Kong for her interior design business and she'd always come back with little gifts which were usually things like books about science and you know solar panel kits that you could build to run a motor and then there were plant ones as well and it was always the planty stuff that I gravitated towards so yeah since childhood basically and I blame my mother. (laughs) (laughs) So you blame your mum but how did it go from being interested as a kid 
to studying botany? Well, obviously, going through high school, I pursued the sciences in a, in a big way. And not that I didn't enjoy other subjects, but um, they were my passion. And I always took whatever means I could to ensure that I was following the right path to end up studying science at university, which I did. My undergrad was actually in microbiology, but the plant pathology side of things, because I wanted to get a, a good feeling for how microorganisms interact with plants and cause disease symptoms and all that. But later on, I went on to study a PhD, which is super nerdy, and that was looking at developmental biology, which is as hardcore as it gets in terms of the research methodologies involved. But while I really enjoyed studying at that high technical level, I've always preferred organismic biology, the whole organism, which is what classical botany is. You look at the structure of the plant, its uh, ecology, its habitats, and being in the field to do research for me is much more interesting than sitting at a lab bench. Not to say that that work is important too, it's just less me. So in many ways, the study and discovery of plants has been Alastair's life work. Here he shares a powerful story about what also drew him to his research and fueled his passion. Once, when returning to, to Malaysia from the UK, I was over there for about three years without coming back to Malaysia. And as the plane descended towards Kuala Lumpur, the whole landscape had changed from a sea of rainforest to palm oil plantation. And despite being a young teenager, it, it actually brought tears to my eyes. It was a deeply upsetting and emotional thing to see. And while I understand the reasons for it, you know, it's an emerging economy and they are entitled to develop the landscape in whatever manner suits the nation's interests it was it was it was genuinely heartbreaking and it felt really important to me to be able to get out there and study and catalog the diversity of the rainforests in particular before it was too late and of course that's what i ended up doing for a good 18 years before i ended up at the royal botanic gardens in, in melbourne a moment like that stuck with alistair and fuels his work he talks more about why what he does is so important to him I think in working in this field, I can help raise awareness of what we have, what we don't know we have, and uh, what we stand to lose, particularly when faced with issues such as illegal poaching of plants from the wild and simply not ascribing value to the habitats that they live in. I, I recognize that obviously, you know, we, we have our needs as a species. We need to expand the areas we live in and turn over land to agriculture to help sustain us, but often it's not done well. And by cataloging what we have, we, we, we can help safeguard the survival survival of species into the future. Not only does Alastair work hard at cataloguing species scientifically, he also posts pictures and descriptions of extremely interesting looking plants on his Instagram. I asked him why he does this. Over my career exploring Southeast Asia, um, parts of Eastern Africa, etc., I've been able to photograph some really spectacular plants and plants that you don't see, you know, in, in, in your average nursery or you know, for sale online. And you get to see them in habitat as well. And just every every photo tells a story. There's there's usually a, a story to go with an individual picture about the plant or, or the, the story about how we got to the plant and the habitat it grows in and what makes it special, its rarity, for example, or simply cataloging the fact publicly that it's the only one we saw despite days and days of searching because of poaching, particularly with a burgeoning houseplant industry, uh, which has skyrocketed since lockdown. People are ordering plants online, often without paying heed to where the material might have come from. In the case of commercial nurseries, it's usually fine. Sometimes there are people who do obtain material through unscrupulous channels. Of course, that's more challenging in Australia because we have strict uh, biosecurity, but it still happens. And, um, you know, if you see an amazing rare plant online and it looks 
too good to be true. It probably is. It, it may have come through improper channels. What would be the detriment of buying or accessing that plant? That's a great question. So poaching worldwide is a, a major problem. But the fact is poachers only poach because of the value ascribed to plants by collectors like us. So if we buy a plant from someone who does source them illegally or improperly, we're effectively giving money to the people who are doing the worst kind of damage to the environment in terms of uh, undermining biodiversity. Alastair sees the importance of protecting biodiversity and has worked to protect it for many years. He talks more about why what botanists like him do truly is so important. Worldwide, the environment is changing at uh, an increasingly rapid rate, and a lot of that is at the expense of biodiversity of plants and of animals. People often get really worked up about protecting animals, but if you don't protect the habitats that they live in, the foods that they eat, then it's a dead end for them too. And so in working in an industry, uh, or a field rather, where we can make decisions that help to ensure the long-term survival of plants and to, to show to the public how amazing they are, how diverse they are and how colorful, how flamboyant, you know, it's a really wonderful, powerful thing. And it's the single best way I can see of contributing to that conservation. Alastair does contribute to conservation. And actually, his speciality is in carnivorous plants. What is a carnivorous plant? That is the perfect question. So a carnivorous plant, there is a super nerdy botanical definition, which is simply that in order to be carnivorous, a plant has to attract animal prey, it has to trap that prey, and then it has to derive benefit from the prey by absorbing the nutrients in their bodies. And we used to include the production of digestive enzymes in that definition, but we now know that some species actually rely on microorganisms or even specialized insects to digest their food for them, which is pretty amazing. I mean, you know, so the concept of carnivory in plants is actually actually still evolving. They were actually a favourite topic of study of Darwin himself, who produced a, a single volume on insectivorous plants and declared that the sundews, which are quite common across Australia, were the single most amazing thing that he'd ever studied, which is pretty special coming from him. That is really special. What is it about carnivorous plants that interests you? Funnily enough, that sort of harks back to growing up in Malaysia because I would occasionally stumble across them. I specialize in tropical pitcher plants known as nepenthes, and these are across Southeast Asia with odd pockets elsewhere in places like Madagascar, New Caledonia, and Meghalaya in Northeastern India. And my interest in them mainly started when I left my homeland and ended up overseas where I was like, oh, the plants here are a little bit more depauperate, <laughs> which is totally unfair. The European flora is, is, is pretty specky, but they sort of acted as a connection to home. And ever since then, I've taken an interest in their biology and taxonomy and eventually ended up discovering various species during my explorations. And it's not to say always that I was the first person to see them, but the, the thing about finding a new species is that you have to know which species have already been described in order to know that it's new. So. It's pretty cool that in the modern world we live in, we're still able to make discoveries like that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it's partly related to, to, to what I said about plants being recognised as new as opposed to being seen. For example, um, in the Philippines, we climbed a couple of mountains in 2007 that had no documented climbs before, but the lands that the mountains occurred in fell within the area of a tribe called the Tagbanua. And of course, they hunt in the forests there and they, they would doubtless get up these mountains because of, you know, innate curiosity and uh, going on long trips 
trips with their mates to to hunt deer or whatever. And so we worked with the tribe to to climb some of these mountains. And we got up to the top of one of them, Mount Victoria. This was in 2007, and found one of the largest carnivorous pitcher plants that had been discovered since 1850 or so. And they were like, oh yeah, yeah, we've seen this before. It was just one of the things that grew up on the mountain that was in their backyard. And for us, it was very special. For them, it was more peculiar that we were so interested in the plant. And so we got permission from the local authorities to to make a legal collection and ended up naming this species after David Attenborough, just to draw attention to the value of the mountains in this part of the Philippines, because there were no national parks in that immediate area. And the the upshot of that work, the attention gained, is that they are talking about gazetting that mountain as a national park, which, you know, if that happened, you know, in the next couple of years, I I I would die happy, honestly. Okay, now we've got a better understanding of what Alistair and other botanists do. I want to know what the best part of what Alistair does is. I think that anyone with a good sense of adventure is well served by botany. In the past, I've been tasked with organizing an expedition to a mountain in the middle of nowhere. Lately, uh, a mountain in the middle of uh, Kalimantan in Borneo that hadn't been climbed for 97 years, and no one knew how to get there. And so uh, as expedition logistician, I, I had to get in touch with local people there, church missionaries, and establish whether there were locals who hunted on or took boats up the local rivers, basically how we could get close to this particular mountain. And after six months of planning, we went out there and it all panned out just fine in the end. And it was it was an incredible trip. And we, we made some discoveries that sort of answered some lingering botanical mysteries that had existed since the mountain was first botanized a very, very long time ago. So it's definitely, um, as a curious person, as, as a biologist, just being able to identify unanswered questions and come up with answers or to go on adventures. And obviously, I, I do that a little bit less now, given that I am now a, ma- a manager at the Botanic Gardens and less likely to travel than I was. But, you know, it's something that and upcoming young botanists can certainly get out and do, which I, I think is uh, is an incredible thing in terms of experience and well-lived experiences. It's very Indiana Jones. It can be. And some of the photos, um, you know, you get home and, and, and my husband, for example, is like, you, you did not climb that. That looks so dangerous. But ultimately, we do take health and safety very seriously, especially in remote locations. I mean, it, it's all well and good to have a satellite phone and an EPUB to let the authorities know where you are if there's a an emergency, but uh, you don't want anything to go wrong when you're in the middle of nowhere. You mentioned that you're now working at the Botanical Gardens and you're traveling less. What does a week in your life look like now? Well, I manage part of the science division at the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne, and I oversee a team of botanists as well as a mycologist specializing in fungi and also curatorial staff who oversee the Botanical Library and Fine Art Collections in the National Herbarium of Victoria, which is Australia's largest and probably most important herbarium. Most botanical gardens and universities will have a a herbarium, which is simply the name for a curated collection of preserved plant and fungal specimens. And the one here in Melbourne is home to 1.5 million specimens, which makes it the largest single herbarium in Australia and Oceania, and probably the largest botanical library in the region as well. So our teams oversee various things, including identification botany, the plant ID service, and feeding into some of those societal things I alluded to earlier, like conservation, supporting hospitals, like the poisons helpline, for example, biosecurity and food security, just answering the, the needs of the community whilst also providing a permanent record 
record of plants across Victoria, wider Australia. But also we have about 500,000 specimens that hail from overseas. So we're also an important reference herbarium for institutions elsewhere, particularly Europe, the Americas and Southeast Asia. Obviously, it's a very different role than Indiana Jonesing around. It uses the same skill set, but it is different. Is there a reason you made the shift? Well, I really enjoyed the opportunities that my previous role as a field botanist presented in terms of being able to explore. But that was it was partly to broaden my horizons and increase my ability to recognize different types of plants from different places. But also there was a, a sense of responsibility, you know, as a married man and wanting to be a bit more sensible about my choices because, you know, I did end up in some unfortunate situations. You know, I've, I've torn off my biceps, dislocated my right shoulder God knows how many times and have always been able fortunately to walk out of the situation but as you as you get a little bit older you become a little bit more cautious I mean I still go on trips but I also wanted to make more of a meaningful difference in an organization that is very much respected you know, wherever it may be in this case in, in Australia and to more directly affect our conservation efforts for example one thing I didn't mention is that we house something called the Victorian Conservation Seed Bank which acts like an arc, if you will, of our most endangered plants. And it supports the need to more effectively deliver on our, our promise to safeguard the nation's rare and threatened flora. And being able to be involved in, in safeguarding species that are threatened by extinction is, is pretty amazing. And you can't do that as an individual. It's a, an organization, often a, a state level sort of thing. And that was really driven home by the catastrophic bushfires of 2019, 2020. They burnt, I think it was 18.6 million across the country and over 1.5 million hectares of those total was actually in, in Victoria and to deal with the massive threat that the burns had on wildlife and plants the government issued funding to help us salvage our most threatened species. Zoos Victoria was also on hand with regional agencies spearheading the animal side of things whereas our team at the Royal Botanic Gardens Victoria dealt with the plants and so uh, we were designated to head up the Botanic Gardens response working with local government to get out in the field and rescue material of our rarest plants as quickly as possible because they were literally threatened with being wiped out forever. So that sort of hands-on conservation is very important and special to be involved in. Okay, so now we know what is special, but what about the not-so-glamorous side of botany? Is there any bad part? Oh, well, look, it, it depends. <laughs> in my previous role, it was managing people who are difficult to manage. But in my current role, I am the luckiest man in the world because my team is incredible. I work with, well, my, my team is 10 people who are just super talented. Their needs are minimal and I do my best to support them when they arise, but they're really easy. So all that leaves me with is bureaucracy. But I think uh, bureaucracy is sort of a, an inevitability of, of this sort of environment because you do have to ensure that things are done by the book, especially when um, spending public money and working with species that may be endangered or threatened, they'll usually have a protected status. So you need to make sure that everything is carried out by permit. Now we have that out of the way. Has there been a moment in Alistair's career that really validates what he does? Well, there's different levels to that. I think although it was extremely stressful and very challenging to, to execute during lockdown, carrying out the or coordinating the, the bushfire salvage work felt very important, which it was, and it was very meaningful to me in that regard. But on the other hand, there's there's more, I suppose, ego-related things where you, you find a, a new species and you just can't believe how 
stunning it is. I mean, whether it's a, a tiny orchid three centimeters high or a, a giant tropical pitcher plant, it's, it's always amazing. It's a privilege to be able to document something that's new and to, to share it with the, the, the rest of the world, I guess. Speaking of finding new things, you've had a slipper orchid named after you, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, um, type of slipper orchid. So there's a little bit more to that. So I stumbled across a, a Paphiopedalum slipper orchid in Sulawesi, and I stumbled across a group of plants growing on a mountainside of a, a peak we were trying to get up with a, with a bunch of other botanists. And I took a photograph of it. And when I got back, I shared it with the various people and some specialists, because it's not that particular group of plants is not my specialism. They said, oh, that, that plant is new. And that was that. And then a few, a couple, a year or two later, a paper came out where they described it and named it after me. But I, I was not involved because I didn't have a permit to collect. I didn't touch the material um, that we found in the field. I was only able to take photographs and measurements and just, you know, marvel at its beauty because I didn't know that group as well as I do now. I didn't know it was a new species. So it was sort of a, a surprise to, to have it named after me. And even more embarrassing, later I found a photo from someone else who had photographed it on another mountain, an amazing wildlife photographer called Chen Li, who, who works in Borneo. And he had photographed this same species. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it should have been named after him, if you're going to name it after a person at all. It's actually not something that I really advocate naming plants after people. I think they should be celebrated for their particular characteristics or the locations or the countries that they grow in. But sometimes, like the plant that we named after David Attenborough, there there are very particular reasons for doing it that way. And as far as these slipper orchids go, apparently it's the tradition to name them after a person who was involved in their discovery. It still must be pretty cool though, right? Do you know what? It, it's complicated. At the beginning, I was really embarrassed and I, I sat on it for a good six months before, you know, really um, answering any questions about it. Obviously, I informed my immediate family, but I didn't put it on Facebook. It's just, I was mortified, mostly because I didn't feel like I was the one who deserved to be immortalized in that way because there were other people in the team. I just happened to be the one who shared some photographs of it, which is why it's not about ego. It's about working effectively with other people and I don't want to alienate people I work with and I, I was on a trip with other people uh, who are my friends and they could have been named as the discoverer had their photographs been shared with the right people. It's actually really lovely that Alistair didn't want to take all the credit and was conscious of his whole team. I wondered if when he was a kid he ever dreamed of being in such a team or being where he is today. Absolutely not. I didn't really have any conception of what it meant to be a botanist other than that I wanted to study plants. It's just it's just one of those things that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly not a field that people enter into for mercenary reasons, because science is chronically underfunded unless you work in biotech, like in California, for example, or, or Singapore, big, big science hubs. It's not an industry to make a, a wealthy living from, so it certainly was about passion rather than money. But there's certainly been wonderful experiences that I can attribute to that. So while he didn't know it was going to be his path, he has been on it for many years. What would Alistair tell someone with a passion for plants like his? I would be very upfront. I think it's a very challenging field to get into simply because of the funding side of things. But that if it is your passion, you know, if you want to, I hate the expression, but your, your best life, if you want to live your best life, you really need to follow your passions because it can be very challenging to end up in a working environment, which is very much other than what you envisage for yourself. And look, I absolutely recognize that there's a great deal of privilege, you know, in being where I am an established botanist and, and being able to do what I do with who I do it with. But a lot of botanists, 
artists aren't able to you know follow their passions because it's simply not expedient it doesn't pay the bills so it's it's, it's a challenge but if you can go for it and if you can't just keep the interest alive in whatever way that you can because admiring being able to admire the beauty of the natural world is just it's just one of the most special things while it seems botany isn't for the faint-hearted Alastair does let me in on a very fun fact. There's an assumption that only botanists or zoologists can describe a new species of plant of animal, but that's that's not actually true because the work is generally done by someone trained in taxonomy, the science of naming things, but actually you don't need to be a professional botanist or zoologist to describe a new species. So I could find a new species? Yes, Emily, you could absolutely describe a new species. And the rules for plants, at least plants, I don't know about animals because I'm not a zoologist, is this, you need to deposit a legally collected voucher specimen. A voucher is simply a perfect reference specimen of the new species. So you find a, a specimen that looks, it's like your model specimen. You then decide on a name and write a description. The description used to be written in Latin. That was a requirement until very recently. As a traditionalist, I kind of missed that rule, but anything that makes science more accessible and egalitarian is definitely worthwhile in my books. But once you've done the description, all you do is formally publish it in a journal. And at the point of publication, the name becomes official. You have now named a new species. So you know Latin? Yeah, so I, I was at a boarding school and uh, one of the subjects we had to take was Latin. And at the time I hated it and now I love it. It's just one of those things you're like, why on earth am I learning a dead language? And then you see why, because you end up being a botanist and all the old texts are written in Latin. And I used to do translations into Latin for people as well. It feels like it's a bit like maths in school. You're like, when am I ever going to use algebra? <laughs> I'm still the same <laughs> about maths. <laughs> Now we've bonded over a disdain for maths, I had one last question for Alistair. Will he be doing what he's doing forever? Well, look, when I finished my PhD, I had student debts and I worked as a web developer, a consultant, and that paid off my debts in no time at all. So, you know, that's something I can do. I qualified as a, as a teacher whilst in the UK during a bit of a, a science funding depression, if you will. And while teaching was and is an amazing field, it was challenging in a way that I, I, I would certainly be happier staying in, in botany until that option were no longer viable, just because as a teacher they easily work harder than anyone else they give uh, a good teacher anyway will give so much of themselves that it can be really exhausting certainly one of the hardest things i ever did and i don't regret it but i am so happy with the work that i'm able to be involved in that um, i would happily do it up until retirement and look i i'm also interested in art and do do botanical illustration and that sort of goes part and parcel with my professional career because you need to illustrate plants when you describe them for example but, you know, it's just fun to, to make a doodle of something that you're working on. And it's sort of a, a field that has many different facets to it. And so in that regard, I don't ever see myself getting bored or disenchanted with it. I'd like to thank Dr. Alastair Robinson for being on the show. It's been so interesting to hear about the possibilities still available to find new plants and how it's so important we conserve and protect biodiversity. If you want more info about Alastair, or want to check out his very cool plant pics, follow him on Instagram at botany.doc. Thanks for listening to another episode of How Do You Do That with Emily Tresseter. If you think you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, get in touch. Email howdoyoudothat at joy.org.au. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. 
go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy. Joy.